The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guests today are Suzanne Leggi Powelski and her husband, James Powelski. They're the authors of this really fascinating new book, Happy Together, Using the Science of Positive Psychology to Build Love That Lasts. The book is reviewed in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. And I re- there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I want to just jump right in. But thank you both very much for being on Essential Conversations with us. Thank you so much for having us, Ravi. We're excited to be here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, this is going to be interesting. So I want to start because, you know, we're talking about positive psychology and people may not be familiar with the term. And I don't want to go into long Wikipedia you know, exercise on what it is. But if you can give us sort of the, 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 the short version of what positive psychology is, that'll put us on a good place to jump off from. Sure. So mainstream psychology focuses on what's wrong with people and how to fix it, which is, of course, very important. Positive psychology focuses on what's right with people and how to cultivate it, which is also important and we think a whole lot more fun. Okay, I like that. A lot more fun. Uh, you know, I was looking up some, some texts on positive psychology and I found Christopher Peterson's book and he defines it as the scientific study of what makes life most worth living. And you know, I was a philosophy major as, as an undergrad and, you know, we always were told that philosophy is about what makes life worth living, and there's no science in it at all. Maybe some art, but where does the science come in? So when positive psychology is studying what's right with us, what is this, what, what, when you use the word science in that context, what are we looking at? Is it, is it in a lab you figure this out or, or what? So, Rami, it's interesting that you were a philosophy major. I have my PhD in philosophy, actually. Um, So I was attracted to the field of positive psychology because it was asking the same kinds of questions that you and I were attracted to 
in philosophy. And it was coming at it from a complementary standpoint in terms of the methods of inquiry. So I think one of the things that we learn in philosophy and in life in general is that one approach, one way of investigating life is not likely to yield all of the richness, all of the truth that it that, that there is to discover. And so I think that philosophy, I think religion, I think literature, historians, many approaches uh, have delved into this question of the good life, of, of how we ought to live our lives, how we can achieve well-being. So I was fascinated when uh, empirical psychology began to move into this domain. I don't think that science either is the one way of finding out the absolute truth on well-being. But I think it gives us really useful guides. And these methods of inquiry can range from, as you said, they can range from laboratory uh, research. So we can bring people into the lab and ask them questions, uh, prime them with positive emotions, for example, and see what that does to their uh, perspectives on a variety of things. We can also take this out into the world and look at um, efficacy studies. So how what happens when we intervene in real life contexts? We can now take this to big data research. So looking at uh, data uh, at, at Twitter feeds, billions of Twitter feeds, what does that tell us about people's well-being? So I see this, Rami, as very complementary to the work that you and I did as students. Yeah, I'm interested. I'm, I, now I understand why Aristotle plays such a big role in the book. You, you, you figured I put so many years into this, I better find some way to use it. No, you know, as, uh, I decided that philosophy was too practical, so I got my PhD in religion. <laughs> I needed something, anything that would, you know, keep me from, from earning a living. That, that was the way to go. So, okay, so now we have a sense of, of positive psychology, and we're using it, just again, I'm, the title alone just drew, you know, offered all these questions to using positive psychology to build a love that lasts. And I want to talk about love and I want to talk about last. Let's, let's start with love. How are you understanding that in the context of the book? So it's interesting, um, the two of you talking about philosophy. So married to a philosopher, you can imagine, um, you know, I was attracted uh, to that as well. And on our honeymoon, in fact, I will admit that my husband uh, lugged along more books than he did, um, you know, other items for our honeymoon. So as we're sitting on the beach, we were talking about Aristotle and um, we we're talking about the Nicomachean ethics and talking about his um, the love of the good and love of the you know, utility and uh, love of pleasure. Or I should let me rephrase that. Um, can I jump I think, in? Here? Yeah, I need to. You jump <laughs> so, in as the philosopher, so I can say this. So part. Aristotle says yeah. that there yeah. are three things that yeah. human beings love. Yeah. We love what is useful. We love what is pleasurable and we love what is good. And so one of the things that I talk with my students about is in terms of, uh, uh, you know, it's important to have. Well, Aristotle talks about uh, relationships that are based on friendships that are based on utility. And, um, you know, it's important to be able to have relationships in our lives. Maybe we team up with people to, uh, you know, with a partner to start a business or something. Uh, it's important to have friendships in our lives with people who, you know, it was just fun to hang out with them. Maybe we'd go out with them on the weekends. And Aristotle says there's nothing wrong with those kinds of friendships, but there's a third level of friendship that is the highest level, he says. And that is the friendship of virtue or character, where you see the good in someone else 
and um, that inspires you to want to be a better person yourself. So now take it away, Susan. Oh, thank you, James. So anyhow, James was talking about the concept of having like an Aristotelian friend. And he does that with his students in class. He says, pick a friend and this person um, will be like your support, you know, throughout the year. So we were talking about that concept on the beach. And I said, well, um, having just gotten married, why did Aristotle have to limit that just to friends? What if we took that concept one step further and we didn't just become husband and wife, you know, partners, lovers, but we became Aristotelian lovers, helping each other uh, build our strengths and really um, helping each other uh, support one another's character and seeing the good in each other. And James said, I love that idea. <laughs> wow. So I mean, that's, that's very cool. I mean, you, you, you noticed that he brought, you didn't say this, but I'm saying that he brought more books than condoms. So you figured, okay, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta figure out some way to make this work. And, and that's what you came up with. I think that's, that was brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, this notion of love built on on the good and you know on that Aristotelian notion sort of flies in the face of what the the general culture thinks of when they think of love right it's yeah so so do you run when you're working with people do they you have to help them overcome the i don't know the 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 cliche notion of love or romantic love and say no, this is this is not opposed to romance, but it is it embraces and transcends it. Is it is it a hard sell? I don't think so. I mean, I think if you focus w when you think about it, uh, as James mentioned, you know, you get together, let's say friends or business colleagues, or you know, romantic partners in the beginning. And I think when you look at marriage and relationships over history, lots of times you know, was utilitarian. You got married, you had the dairy, you married the right family, right? Or um, more recently, pleasure, you know, in pop culture, you go out, you have fun together, and then that kind of dies. And when you talk to people on a deeper level, and if we get into strengths later, the notion of strengths, hopefully we're attracted to people because we see goodness, right? And that's more um, stable over the long term. And like Aristotle says, unless, you know, their character changes, uh, those kind of friendships of good and virtue are more uh, sustainable over a long run than those of just pleasure. Because when the pleasure goes away, or let's say it's money investing in a company together, you know, the relationship usually falls apart. So I think when people think about that, it, it kind of makes sense. And Rami, I, I think that, you know, this isn't going to be an easy sell for everyone. But I think that the more, as Susie mentioned, the more experience we have trying it the kind of fairy tale way where you just kind of, you know, you get hit by lightning, your, your soulmate comes along on a white steed and suddenly, you know, you're living happily ever after. And we all, or many of us at least, hope that that will happen. We maybe expect that. And, but experience oftentimes has something very different in store for us. And I think as people begin to experience real life, then the temptation is to perhaps despair uh, or to become cynical or skeptical. And I think that's where our book becomes an easy sell because it provides a middle ground between this kind of easy, false expectation of, uh, you know, living happily ever after just happening to us versus this despair that, that we just can't, there's nothing we can do 
um, about it. And so what we're trying to argue in this book is that, um, you know, this isn't about fairy tales. It's about real life. And just like anything else, our work lives, our physical health, these are things that we have to pay attention to. And there are specific concrete steps and habits that we can develop to make the kind of progress that we, that we want. And that's where the practical side of the book comes in. And, and, but we'll let, we'll let people find out the practical stuff, uh, you know, by reading the book, because there's, there's other issues that um, came up when I was mentioning to people, oh, I'm going to be talking about this tonight. And they said, oh, it's sex. And I said, well, actually, that's, that doesn't play a big role in the book. It, it only, I mean, if you, if you look at the number of times you talk about sex, it's quite limited. So let me just throw that out. Uh, how, how important is sexual intimacy to the relationship that, that we're trying to build here? Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We're still conducting research and collecting data on that part. <laughs> yeah, he's, so he, wait, I, what you're really saying, Susie, is that, that uh, James is reading about it. <laughs> I mean, right. we see like Aristotelian love as the goal. And to your point, the science as kind of the mechanism and positive psychology. I mean, how we came up, the idea of this book, we were not looking to write a popular book. I was definitely not looking to write a book on relationships. So what did I do? You know, I wrote a book on relationships with my husband. Honestly, um, this book was inspired by an article that I had done for Scientific American Mind back in uh, 2010, applying the science of positive psychology to relationships. Because at the time when I was looking at the research, I thought, wow, there's some interesting stuff with romantic relationships committed long term, but it's not anywhere you know, in an accessible format uh, for people to read. It was basically sitting around in those academic texts that you know, my husband reads and you probably read. <laughs> but so I wrote this article and I got so much feedback and people kept on saying, you know, are you going to write any more? And then I encouraged James to do workshops um, on this topic, romance and research. And I just kept on looking into research and you're presenting it. And that's how the book idea came up. But it was Aristotle had to be in there or honestly, I didn't want to write it because it was that conversation we had on the beach saying, wow, what if that was our goal, our mm -hmm. personal goal in life, and we use the science to help our own relationship and other people get there. Um, so to the sex part, we talked about that when we were writing it. And to be honest, there's some research now that's being done and the uh, notion of um, harmonious passion and the obsessive passion uh, um, about sex that's more pleasurable or less, depending how you know obsessive you are if you're obsessively passionate towards your partner, um, as opposed to in a healthy relationship. So there's a little bit of that, but other than that, we didn't want to speculate or guess. So 
maybe that'll be the next book. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, oh, okay. Yeah. And, yeah so, so this this may be the respect in which this book will be a hard sell because it doesn't have you know torrid uh, chapters in it about um, sexuality. But to, to Susie's point, the field of positive sexuality is just getting started, and so we didn't want to get ahead of the science mm-hmm. uh, in, in what we wrote about. Just to amplify a little bit what Susie mentioned about obsessive love. So one of the things that we are bombarded with in our culture is, um, you know, really focusing on the other person. You want to find somebody who can't think about anything but you. They're completely taken by you. Um, You know, we even have fragrances. There's one called obsession, right? Um, So this is kind of something that is, um, uh, that is lauded, but it turns out that uh, if you are in a relationship where somebody is truly obsessed with you. That's probably not a good thing. And as a matter of fact, uh, women who are in relationships where their partner is obsessively uh, attracted to them, those women report being less sexually satisfied than other women. Oh, so that's interesting. Also interesting that there's a, a an emerging field of uh, for the for the study of sexual, you know, positive psychology and sex, positive sexuality. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's very interesting. That uh, this whole, I mean, Seligman hit on something when he started this positive psychology thing that's just sort of taken off as an alternative. And I don't want to get sidetracked because I, I do want to go back to the book. But it seems like he's really tapped into a a deep need that people had for working on what's good and how to make it better, as opposed to simply focusing on, uh, you know, what's wrong with us. That's right, Rami. And when you think about, um, you know, so many different domains, but just for a moment on, on sexuality, um, Brianna Booth is a graduate of our uh, master's program in uh, applied positive psychology. She went on to get her PhD in human sexuality and has done some really great work. When you think about, you know, sexuality, we were told so often about the dangers, about how we shouldn't do it, From a moral perspective, it's not right under X, Y, and Z circumstances. From a medical perspective, it can be dangerous under A, B, and C circumstances. Um, And so the message that we often get, especially growing up, is no, 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 no. Here are all the downsides, right? Um, And so the the temptation is we can focus on the the problems associated with it and under-focus on the rich contribution that it can give us uh, in our lives and in our relationships. So uh, Brianna is one of the people who's leading the way in trying to understand how we can approach sexuality um, in a in a deeply positive way. So not just, you know, some of the empirical work around sexuality is, you know, orgasm counting, right? Um, and surely that's not the same thing as well-being and sexuality. So what she's doing is driving in a, in a much deeper way to get at these connections uh, with well-being. Wow, that's I mean, very interesting. Have to have her write for the magazine, maybe. We can, we can talk to her on this podcast. So in the few minutes that we have left, I want to just touch on the notion of a, of, of a love that lasts. And this is sort of an abstract question, but I don't think it's irrelevant. How long should it last? So I'm thinking about a relationship and, you know, there's, there's uh, the notion, you know, uh, in, in, I don't know what kind of wedding ceremony you had, but many wedding ceremonies, it says, you know, until death do us part. 
uh, and you get the meatloaf song, you know, then the guy starts praying for her death. So um, it used to be that, you know, our lifespans were so short that monogamy, you could, you could have an argument, you could make an argument for monogamy. Yeah, people could stay together for 20 years, 30 years, and then they died. Now, you know, we're living longer and longer. And I wonder if you see uh, a, a need to rethink the notion of monogamy to st- and, and how that might tie, to po- tie into positive psychology where a relationship may have, and I'm making this up so you can say something, but a relationship may have a, uh, a moment, uh, a, a sort of that peak moment when you say, okay, it's been X number of years and we can see the qualities of it are shifting and this is the perfect time to end this relationship because we're going to live to be 150 and we've been together for, you know, 60 years. Now let's, let's see what's next. Is there any, do you have any sense of that given the change in lifespan? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, a great and profound question. It's not one that we directly address in our book, but since I'm a philosopher, that doesn't stop me from, you know, speculating about things as you can imagine, Rami. Um, that's why, that's why I asked it. I, I know it's not in the book. You do a podcast. <laughs> that's right. Um, but look, I think that, uh, going back to Aristotle, you know, he talks about, uh, friendships and we can talk about now you know relationships of that are based on uh usefulness or relationships that are based on pleasure and i think that that a lot of times romantic relationships are based on those uh perspectives and we have nothing against relationships being useful or pleasurable but we think that if those are if the relationship is founded on that it may not be um, as stable. And indeed, Aristotle says, you know, if you, if you have a friendship of utility, usefulness, and, you know, you, the, the relationship stops being useful, you're going to stop the friendship. Or if you have a relationship of pleasure, and it's not really that much fun going out with the person anymore, you'll stop going out with them. Whereas he argues that relationships of virtue or based on character are likely to be a lot more stable. He says there are only two reasons why a relationship like that is likely to stop. One is you just stop spending time together. You know, you move away and you don't, you don't hang out anymore. Or secondly, the person's character changes. So if you love the good in another person and they somehow become corrupt and um, lose their good character, he argues, then you may not, you, you no longer love the person in that way. So I don't think our job, certainly not in this book is to, you know, um, is to, uh, I don't think our job is to weigh in on uh, monogamy or its merits or, you know, um, uh, where people stand on that. Our job, though, I think, is to help people who want to be together to know how to be together more effectively or to have tools for being together more effectively so that relationships that might be more tottering can be regrounded or refounded, renewed in ways that are deeper and more, um, more long lasting. So maybe who knows, after 60 years, you look at your partner and you say, you know, it's been a good 60 years. Let's, uh, let's have at it for another 60. That's a perfect place to bring the conversation to a close. Our guests today were Suzanne Pelegi Powelski and her husband, James Powelski. Their new book, Happy Together, Using the Science of Positive Psychology to Build Love That Lasts, is reviewed in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. 
You can learn more about their work at www.buildhappytogether.com. Suzanne and James, thanks so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. It was, it was really fun, Rami. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much, Rami. We had a great time. My pleasure. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness with yogis from around the world. And do so in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour and part pilgrimage as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites that we'll visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com slash holyland with Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. While you're on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast, leave us a rating and a review. We can always learn how to do this show more effectively if we have input from those who care enough to listen. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.